Welcome to the Coaching Revealed podcast series on leadership coaching. I'm one of the podcast hosts, Austin Matzel. In today's episode, Dr. Pamela Larde, Director of Education at the Institute of Coaching, interviews Dr. Richard Boyatzis, a renowned author, professor, and researcher specializing in leadership development and intentional change theory. The conversation delves into Richard's journey from studying physics and designing interplanetary vehicles to becoming a prominent figure in psychological research. He discusses his early involvement in psychotherapy for addiction and his shift towards studying people. Pamela's questions about Richard's core identity, his work, and the connection between his personal and professional life transitions to intentional change theory, where Richard emphasizes the importance of starting with a desired change, understanding sustained change, and embracing the power of dreams. Richard shares the five epiphanies or discoveries integral to intentional change theory, emphasizing the significance of a person's dream, the positive emotional attractor, real self in others' eyes, personal agenda, and experimentation. The conversation also touches on the limitations of feedback and the dosages and timing necessary for effective coaching. The interview concludes with a discussion on patience, understanding, and the careful avoidance of making assumptions about past experiences, emphasizing the importance of listening and sensitivity in coaching. Thank you for tuning into Coaching Revealed. Let's get started. So how are you doing today, Richard? Uh, Actually, pretty good. Just want to welcome everybody to this week's um, episode. Um, We are today getting the opportunity to listen to Richard Boyatzis. And so we are going to hear a little bit about his insight, his experience, his background as it pertains to leadership, coaching, and some of his specific work. So just quickly want to give you a little bit of a background of who he is. Um, He's an author and professor and one of the world's leading experts in leadership development and emotional intelligence. His research on human behavior has revolutionized management education and helped shape or helped spawn a new industry of competency consultants, researchers, academics, and executive coaches. He's a distinguished university professor and the H.R. Horvitz Professor of Family and Business at Case Western University in Cleveland and a professor in human resources at East, is that ESAID or ESADE? It's ESADE, but that actually, that role ended in 2020, so. Okay, okay. So he was. I was. For 20 <laughs> years. Yeah, in yeah. Barcelona, um, one of the top business schools in the world. So this, we're going to learn more about him in conversation here. And I have a couple of questions that probably would never be answered in a bio to begin with. So if you wouldn't mind indulging me in some of these questions, Richard, um, I'll go ahead and get started. Who is Richard Boyatzis? Tell me about the 15-year-old version of who you are that still fully exists today? Well, I was 100 pounds lighter, an inch taller, and had a lot more hair. I was um, absolutely enthralled with physics Mm. in a particular space. I was, at that point, enrolled in my first year of physics. Then I took another one. I think my first year of calculus, which I took another one all in high school. And then by the time I got to MIT to actually design, learn to design interplanetary vehicles, it was kind of a continuing role. So I was 
fascinated and very much of a nerd. And I think that's still the same. Although I'm not looking at outer space these days. I, as I like to say, I look at inner space, but I, I still think I'm very technical and very nerdy in many ways. In psychology, whenever you study something, it usually means it's something you have trouble with. So the fact that I've been studying emotional intelligence for all these decades suggests that it's something that is not as easy for me to come by. I think another part of it was even back then I was, I, I like to think of it as playful, although a few of my friends and colleagues that I talked to from those days can actually use the label wise ass more than playful. But so this is interesting because in your answer, you've already answered two of the other questions that I had. Who are you no longer or what parts of you um, are no longer, you know, um, back then the same as now? But the other one, you kind of touched on it a little bit. So I'm going to still ask. Um, but how does your work reflect who you truly are at your core? By the way, these are fascinating questions and ones that, you know, of, of all the typical things that people ask, these are not usual ones. Right. Intentionally. Back to this issue. I think at my heart, at my core, as you said, um, I'm a scientist. I am forever trying to figure things out. And um, now, then the question ends up being, the core is also figure what things out. Well, I have, even in high school, although nobody picked it up because I was so focused on the physics and the calculus and uh, you know, the technological aspects of it that nobody thought about how social I was with all these bands and I was in a lot of clubs and the issue of the scientist and the issue of people's issues. Why? I mean, I spent a lot of the 70s doing psychotherapy with alcoholics and drug addicts and doing basic research on it because I was trying to figure out how do so many people get seduced or let themselves fall into these addiction patterns that are so clearly dysfunctional. In at in a one point, I was averaging, I think, 17 days of group therapy a month. Because when you train therapists, the feds were paying me to train therapists around the country in these new techniques I developed that we used in addition to AA and medical treatment. But that meant that I was doing group therapy with alcoholics and drug addicts with them in different cities. And uh, I had about five psychologists working with me on these, but um, 17 or 18 days of group therapy a month was, after a number of years, was a bit more um, emotionally demanding than I wanted to continue doing. Plus, nobody works with addictions that doesn't get depressed because even even if you're doing well, now 40 or 50% of the people may not use or abuse substances for more than six months, but the recidivism rate, even when the efforts are useful, is um, horrid, actually. But that, but that led me just to look for another phenomena that was multidisciplinary, because I, I've always, I mean, I was trained in a doctoral program at Harvard that was in the psychology and social relations department, which meant we had to pass all of our doctoral exams in social psychology and personality, clinical psychology and cultural anthropology and sociology. That's not so easy. I mean, you know, you know, when you got your doctorate and you went through all these academic things, 
everything is all about specialization. And I mean, when I was running a research consulting company out of Boston for 11 years, you know, we ended up by the time I left had about 110 people, most of whom had PhDs. So it was a fairly sophisticated operation. But the fact is that I never was introduced to as many nuanced different labels as when I entered academia full time. So all of a sudden people said, well, what kind of a psychologist are you? I said, I'm a psychologist. And they said, well, you're experimental. I said, yes. Are you industrial organization? Yes. Are you community? Yes. Are you clinical? Yes. Are you personality? Yes. And they'd say, you can't be all those. And I said, but I am. So the the second part of my core that has to do with focusing on human relations, our relationships, and our um, how we handle ourselves, I, or what I like to say, emotions and relationships, all came together. And when I started what has been my lifelong mission, which is to understand sustained desire change at all levels, um, I'm right now I'm working on what I aspirationally or arrogantly called my magnum opus, my my new book that I'm attempting to put together 57 years of my work on intentional change theory. And that's looking at what enables sustained desired change from individuals to dyads, to teams, to organizations, to communities, to countries. Ready to advance your coaching practice? Join the Institute of Coaching and tap into the world's leading resource for coaching science and professional development. With over 4,000 members across 130 countries, the IOC offers invaluable networking opportunities with an elite global coaching community and innovative learning to broaden your knowledge and keep you at the forefront of coaching best practices. Engaging cutting-edge learning events with world-renowned coaching scholars, from webinars and seminars to discussion groups, research projects, and more. Try any membership free for 30 days. Use promo code IOC podcast and visit instituteofcoaching.org backslash join to get started. Well, and that, that's a good segue into intentional change theory because there are maybe are people who are listening who this is their first introduction to Richard Boyatzis. So how would you describe intentional change theory? <laughs> Well, it starts with why are you looking at change? And part mm-hmm. of it is, I believe that when any of us, either individually or like I said, in our dyads, teams, organizations, communities, or countries, when we want to change, we want to change something. So first of all, we start by saying, is it desired? Do you really want it? And to say you, you want to change because other people have told you I have now all the way to not just behavioral longitudinal evidence, but even fMRI data to say that constitutes what in my theory is called the ought self, the imposition that others are giving you about your ideal self. And whether it's you should be thinner or you should be more energetic or you should be more of a team player, better at X, Y, and Z, whatever those are, those are moments of literally imperialistic oppression. And although well-intended, whether it's your parents or your grandparents or teachers or coaches, it may be all well-intended, but at that moment, that person becomes a helping bully. 
That's key because even today, there are a lot of people who are doing coaching. So, um, and I think the great resignation has proved to us a lot of people think their jobs suck and they don't really care. So the idea with performance coaches that thinks that, of course, you want to improve your performance is ridiculous. So right away, you start to realize how subtle this issue of people imposing their agenda is and and how oppressive it feels. Um, The second characteristic of what I'm after in intentional change theory is sustained change. Mm -hmm. I don't care what you do next week or for the next three months. I mean, we know since the 70s that Almost all leadership and management training in organizations, public or private, consulting or whatever, has a honeymoon period that a person changes some aspect of how they talk or act for three weeks to three months, and then it extinguishes. Yeah. I'm thinking of myself exercising. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the great New Year's Eve resolution thing. You know, you pay your dues for a year and you go for three weeks and, you know, um, that's it. But you know, the idea of sustain means we have to look at it a year or two later. So I'm after sustained desire change. And that's what intentional change theory is all about. It starts with the notion um, that change is discontinuous and that you have to appreciate the actual rhythm of it, articulates five epiphanies or discoveries, if you will, or conscious recognitions that seem to have to occur in in a sequence, but it's iterative, so you keep rotating through. But the first one is not that you have a problem. That's back to the art self. The first one is you have a dream. You know, every one of us, even those who weren't old enough to be there or listen to it live, react to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream Mm -hmm. speech. And even that phrase, I mean, here we came up on the anniversary uh, a couple of days ago, and, and that still invokes something very powerful. And it, as one of my colleagues pointed out, he didn't start out the talk by saying, I have a nightmare. So one of the issues is that it is our sense of purpose, our dream of a possible life mm-hmm. that is the actual primary motivator of change. And it doesn't come because somebody else gives you feedback. Right. Mm. And feedback is way overused and way oversold. Right. You know, it's like we over-medicate people on, in general. Um, and I think right now one of the horrors of how we're raising our children is we overstructure their lives and we over-medicate them. And the net result is they don't understand how to be bored and they turn to um, either get depressed or turn to other substances to alleviate it um, or just stay on their smartphones to play games. But, but the fact is that the dream is the key. Then if you have that, given that it's a power curve, there's mm-hmm. a 5% chance you'll go the next one unless you enter a state, a tipping point that I call the positive emotional attractor where you get open physiologically, neurologically, hormonally, and psychologically to another possibility, then you can become, then you go to the next discovery or phase, which is how are you acting in the eyes of others? I mean, what I call the real self is not what you think of yourself because that's delusional. It's how do other people experience you? 
If you have that, you're eligible for the third, which is what's your agenda? What would you love to be exploring? And interestingly enough, what we've been able to show and is a key feature of intentional change theory is that when you get to the agenda, the context is the dream, is the vision. It's not a goal and it's not a problem. And in fact, if you settle on a specific goal or a specific problem too soon, you close the mind down. We just published another fMRI study a few weeks ago showing that in coaching. If you coach people to a problem or challenges they're having, they activate parts of their brain that literally close them down to new possibilities. So that the agenda is how do you get closer to your dream? How do you use your, in coaching language, how do you use your strengths to get there? What one thing might you work on? You know, the plan, the agenda is not how do you fix yourself? It's how do you move closer to your dream? How do you use your strengths? If you have that, you're eligible for the next one is where you start to experiment and practice. The medium of all this is, do you have key, what we call resonant relationships, which are caring relationships that help you through it all? Uh, And then your lever for your discussions are these moments of the positive emotional attractor, not getting people to wallow in the negativity. I mean, I used to argue in the 70s that I thought a lot of psychotherapists were enabling people to feel sick and depressed because they would just talk more about, tell me more about your problem. I mean, you have to acknowledge it. You can't deny the problem. But, you know, after a few minutes of discussing it, if you don't shift the person's focus, they're in a downward spiral. And they're getting more and more negative. Their mind is closing down and they're not going to learn. So I have a question. Uh, This is so fascinating to me. And um, one of the posts I saw recently on LinkedIn, it was a post about shifting from an approach of feedback. There was a lot of pushback on that, you know, and one of the strongest opposers to that said that if we don't give feedback, we don't learn and we don't grow. And I'm curious to know what your response to that thought is, because a lot of people believe that. Yeah, they believe it because they want to tell other people how to change. They don't believe it because they're looking forward to feedback. I mean, almost everybody, if I can use a visual, at a moment during a performance review goes in and says to their boss, oh yes, thank you for that feedback. That was very interesting. And you're covering your ears for those who can't see. Yeah, yeah, that's right, sorry, I'm covering my ears. Actually, I was sticking my fingers in my ears. So what happens is when you go into a moment in which you're gonna get feedback, whether it's from your manager or your spouse or partner, or your parents, uh, or your in-laws, that what you basically do is covering your ears because you really don't want to hear it. Most feedback is literally wasted because it's coming out of good intentions, but it's, again, being a helping bully. And bullying doesn't help. People dig in their heels. If, If the intent is to help the person change, if the intent is to vomit on them, or if the intent is to get revenge, or if the intent is to write them up, to fire them, then feedback is useful. When do they really want feedback? Not because they should get it. You know, it's like, it's, it's like um, course evaluations after a semester course or even after a workshop. Yeah, I mean, I, I use them, but, you know, the people that run consulting, I mean, I used to run consulting companies, oh, feedback is really important. All of that's, that's a sales gimmick. The point is, 
you know, at the end of a workshop or at the end of a whole semester of working with people, you know, the only feedback I'm emotionally ready for at that moment is, thank you, you've helped change my life. <laughs> or I'm really, I'm really interested in spending more time thinking about X, or you opened my eyes to this possibility. Um, that's what I want to hear then. Now, give me five days or 10 days. And if it's, if it's a workshop, if it's a whole semester course, give me a month. Then I'll sit down with the feedback and really look at it and say, what can, what can I do to make it better next time? Or more specifically, what can I do for certain people to make it better next time? So, I, I mean, I think the issue on feedback is dose and timing. And the dose should be small. And the timing should be when the person really is ready for it. And that's where we have to be very sensitive to all of the social desirability. You know, I would say if you have something to tell somebody that they should be doing differently, keep it to yourself. Because if you tell them without them asking you, they're not going to change anyway. Huge for relationships, whether whatever kind of relationship we're talking about. Right. That, that's huge and counterintuitive to how we think we should be engaging with people when we see something they need to change. Yeah. I mean, people sometimes criticize me for using too many um, anecdotes about, you know, having a, a spouse or uh, it could be with roommates. But because these are emotionally intense relationships, they help illustrate something, which is how often, whether you were a teenager or an adult, was it successful for somebody to say, come on, is it that hard for you to put the dishes instead of in the sink in the dishwasher? So how do we resist that approach? You know, how does it become more natural for us to not to resist? You know, when we want to give feedback, don't. When somebody comes into a coaching session that I'm doing, and I've been, I've been formally coaching executives um, since 1969 in various programs. But if somebody comes to me, even today, <clears throat> um, I'll want to know, you know, who they, something about who they are and what they do. But then quickly into the conversation, I'll ask, you know, why are you here? And it boils down to, you know, kind of two possibilities. One, they're having some problem that's bothering them, or they want to grow and develop. And, and we've actually called this hedonic versus eudaimonic. And when we use the term, Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten, I use the term uh, coaching with compassion. We mean helping and attending to people, caring for them in either of these arenas, whether they're in pain or in trouble or suffering or they want to grow. But I want to hear that. Regardless of what their answer is, I'll listen to it. If I don't understand that, I'll ask for some, in for instance, or an example, but I'll be careful not to let it go more than a few minutes. And then I'll say to them, quite literally, that is really important and we're gonna, going to spend time on it. But first, I'd like to step back a little bit. Help me understand you. Help me understand the big picture of you. And that's how I lead into questions about their dream, their vision. Now, there are times in which people have been traumatized or abused. You know, you're traumatized if you've been a victim of violence, assault, um, God help us, something as extreme as rape. You know, it, it affects people's psyche, if not for decades, for their life. And so sometimes 
people have shut down dreaming. Again, psychological abuse, uh, parental perfectionism, as well as parental abuse, can chase out somebody ever thinking that they can have a dream. But society does that to us, too, especially if we look different than the majority. And mm -hmm. I, I like to put it that way, because although that could be a gender or race difference in the United States, you know, in Nigeria, it's, you know, if you're not Yoruba, <laughs> you're you're in a minority group. So there it's not race. It's a tribal affiliation in China. If you're not Han, it's an ethnicity. So if you're different, visibly different than the majority or the people in power, you're going to have a lot more squelching of your dreams um, imposed. So for those folks, it may take more time. You know, it's not just one conversation. And, you know, I've, I've done this with presidents of companies where, you know, if they'll, they'll I'll give them some assignments and they'll work on a vision. It could take three months of us talking once every two weeks in a coaching session to get a good vision. But I'm not going to let them move ahead to anything else until I feel like they've really wrestled with what their dream is and been comprehensive about it. That's so important um, because there's a, a lot of cases in which we are, we are a fast paced society. And so there's this impatience and, you know, let's get to the next level, right. whether that is the client or the coach themselves. Um, let's just move forward. And what you're saying is so important for a lot of reasons, the trauma, there might be fear, there might be, you know, just let's get this over with um, for a lot of reasons. And I think that's part of our work as, as coaches is to help them see why you might not want to move to the next level. Um, a part of what you said, I mean, it's triggered a couple of things and, you know, we're, we're getting close to time. So I, I cannot bring out all of the things that, that have, <laughs> you've ignited in me. Um, but there is a term called spirit murdering. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you just described it perfectly. Patricia Williams, legal work. Um, and she coined that term in the nineties. Um, and really to it, original research was around young boys in schools and how their teachers engaged with them when they spoke about their dreams and how the teachers right. would say, no, kids from your neighborhood don't do that. They don't play piano. They don't right. play tennis, you know. And so um, that is such important work for coaches to be able to identify when when somebody is responding to having experienced spirit murdering, if we're going to use that term. And, and I would say, Pamela, we have to be very careful here, because right now, one of the consequences of um, people getting overzealous about this is they're making assumptions that other people are traumatized. Yes. So not every black person has slavery in their her in their heritage. Right. And a whole lot of us whites have slavery in our heritage. Um, so and I'm not saying that there's anything at all defensible or even excusable about such an abhorrent practice. Of course, there isn't. And if you have been um, a victim of it, it is going to have a long tail um, right. of a lot of various subtle and not so subtle messages. But and, and you can apply that to almost anything going on today. Yes. So one of the things we have to be careful about is I think we have to list, be sensitive to and listen for and maybe even just ask people direct questions at the appropriate time to find out if there are these um, 
past messages that you've been subjected to. And I, I think that historically, we were insensitive to these things in most cases. Right. But like this issue of the assumption that you want to get ahead and get promoted in your job. That's an assumption. I, I've had that assumption um, placed on me. When I first got my first faculty position, um, one of my friends said, well, good. Now you can start dressing like a professional. I've been very casual in my dress. Most of my professors are, always have been, um, so that you can climb the ladder and become university president one day. I have no desire to become anybody's university president, <laughs> but to her, this is what elevation and she's a coach. This is what it looks like when you climb the academic ladder. Yeah, that, that was her issue. That was her issue. I mean, look, I think these are the issues that we as coaches have to consider. It's one of the reasons why I think coaches have an obligation to not just look at themselves and to mm -hmm. focus on their mindfulness, on their emotional self-awareness, their emotional intelligence, but also, you know, to use supervision to continually monitor it because we slide into these things um, that we then take on as assumptions about other people. And today, you know, we are so bad. And it's not just in America. It's, I've been in six countries in the last year and every country I go in, people are uh, weaponizing labels. It's a whole other conversation, but that is so true. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So all of that is in position. So, and the thing is that coaches are contagious. Our emotions are contagious. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, we've known that neurologically. And that if you're in a position of responsibility, like a coach or a parent or a manager or a leader, you're more infectious. So that means that you have a responsibility to be in touch with your degree of stress, your degree of renewal, yes. your degree of pathos, your degree of hope or futile to your degree of feeling the joy of life. Right. Because whatever is going on inside of you at a deep level, you're provoking it in other people, even if you think you're masking it because uh, we're not that good. So a lot of work in these helping professions, in particular coaching, I think means you have to really stay in touch with and continue working on yourself. I think that might've been an answer to the last question I was going to ask you. <laughs> it was just, did it, you did. I mean, I was going to say, if nothing else that you've said today sticks, what is the one thing that you hope people will come away with today? And if that was the answer, we can yeah. sit with that. But if you have something else. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, well, it's in part, uh, pay attention because to yourself and, and use these techniques. I mean, right now, coaching supervision is hot. I mean, when I was training to be a psychotherapist, everybody assumed you'd have to have your own therapy groups to kind of periodically check on your own stuff. I think it's the same with coaching. Uh, and that's one issue. But the parallel issue is we have to be a little careful about this, too. I mean, narcissism is rampant in our society. And I only know of one antidote to that, and that's to care for others. Yeah. Now, coaches have a real edge here. You know, we're in a job like physicians and nurses and social workers and teachers and if you really want the role, parents, because our role 
is to help others. And if that's the case, then we're in an ideal setting to regularly each day to focus on the other person, on their issues, on their perspectives, on their dreams. And that helps us to both step out of our own miasma, but it also helps us to counter any kind of subtle or not so subtle slides we might have into narcissism. So good. You would bring out a, a whole new term and conversation towards the end. We're done, but <laughs> I would love to dive into narcissism. Uh, but I am so grateful for your time and your insight. Um, I see a lot of parallels with my own work on joy, and I'm just really ready to take this content and actually draw some physical diagrams of how this intersects because this is just so good. So thank you. Well, not, and that, Pamela, that's what I thought when I heard you speak at the uh, Coaching Research Lab. Yeah. Day of discovery. I mean, it just seemed to me that we're on the same path. So uh, I'm glad we could have the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I uh, I sensed where you were going with that uh, last question about you know the key factor. Now, I it, it's a logical point to say you know how do we help people who are in the coaching field? Um, and besides our helping people change book and the mobile app on it that's available. Um, I, I hope you and others would uh, look forward to, because my new book should come out next summer. I am really excited about that. I am really excited. So yes. So thank you so much. Um, as much as I would not like to wrap us up, I know we need to. So thank you all for engaging us in this, uh, this great conversation. I hope you were taking notes. If not, go back and listen again and take some really good notes. I was taking notes. So um, have a really great rest of the day, Richard. It was so great having you. Right. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coaching Revealed brought to you by the Institute of Coaching. You can learn more about the Institute on our website at instituteofcoaching.org. You can stay up to date with new episodes of our podcast by liking and following Coaching Revealed. You can also find us on social media on LinkedIn, Instagram, and X with the handle Institute of Coaching. We also love hearing from our guests. So please reach out to us with thoughts you have on this episode and any questions you have about coaching. Until next time, this is Emily Tarani with Coaching Revealed.